I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part four in the series, Practicing the Way, Community. We live in a flaky world of commitment phobia, but the lifestyle of Jesus and community are fundamentally predicated on commitment, faithfulness, and integrity. How do disciples of Jesus reject the status quo and learn to live in loving community simply by becoming a people of faithful integrity? We are continuing an ongoing series and set of practices about what it means to be a community, which is a word and a term and idea we use all the time here at Van City, but that we're taking a few weeks, weeks to actually explore more in depth. Now, before we get to tonight's text, I want to begin with a thought experiment. It's going to be a fun one. Brace yourself. I want you, if you're up for it, to bring to mind as many truly faithful friends as you possibly can. Now, by faithful, I mean to say the type of person who honors commitments, whether they are big or small, the kind of person who doesn't need coaxing or reminding if they commit, whether it's serious or casual, whether it's a big deal or something very small, you can rely on them to honor that commitment on time just like they said they would. Sit there for a moment, thumb through your mind's Rolodex, Think through every one of your friends that meets that description. Not perfect, obviously, but trustworthy. I'm doing it too. Believe believe it or not, I haven't before this. Now, probably most of you, your minds moved instantly to a person, right? Maybe your best friend or spouse or something like that. And then they slowed down a bit and maybe some of you found a second person, and some of you might have even been able to find a third, and then you kind of stall out after that. Some of you probably had to rack your brain and struggled to produce a single person who, if you're honest, truly meets that description. Maybe some of you can't think of one such person. Now, hang on. Let's explore one more question before we move on. Let's put my working definition of faithfulness in the context of this experiment anyway on the screen for a second. It's a friend who, after claiming they will be somewhere or do something, even when said claim is made casually or in passing, will absolutely be where they said they would be, when they said they would be there, or will do exactly what they said they would do the way they said they would do it. Now ask yourself, would the people in your life describe you this way? And then ask yourself, why? Or why not? Faithfulness is essential to what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And Jesus actually spoke of the required integrity of his followers or apprentices or disciples with all kinds of stark language. Let's read one such instance in Matthew 5. Matthew chapter 5, beginning with verse 33, this is from Jesus' manifesto on what it means to be his apprentice. Matthew 5, 33, Jesus says, again, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not swear by your own head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. 
Now, an oath in the ancient world was an invocation of God or of some sacred object or thing to kind of undergird a statement or a promise made between peoples. And though oaths may have looked quite different in the ancient world, the concept is tremendously normal and familiar in our culture as well. Most of us, I suspect, have any number of oath-like expressions employed to kind of solidify our otherwise flimsy good word. So we say something like, I promise, meaning that's more than just a simple yes. I promise. This one's serious. Or I swear. Or I swear to God. Or my mom used to say, I swear in front of Jesus and everyone. I don't know if she made that up or it was a thing. An old friend of mine, after he broke a promise or just broke a commitment that he made, would say, okay, but listen, now I will give you the oak. And that meant that that was his most unbreakable word. The others, not so much, but the oak was unbreakable. Many people say now literally to emphasize a word, and let's face it, about 99% of the time what you mean is figuratively, which interestingly is the opposite of literally, but I digress. Oaths, though often uh, optional, were sometimes mandatory in the Old Testament. And Jesus says, listen, if you were simply honest in the first place, no oath would be necessary at all. In fact, that we say them at all suggests that we otherwise lie. So Jesus is saying, therefore, just be honest. Don't make oaths at all. An oath ordinarily was accomplished by invoking God himself as the one who would kind of oversee and validate a person's word. Even so, much like our ordinary expressions of something like, I swear to God, these invocations had been drained of their seriousness, and they meant very little. So as a result, some Jews had developed the interesting technique of employing more inoffensive substitutes rather than using the name of God to swear. So swear by heaven or swear by Jerusalem or swear by your head or whatever it might be. Because when, when God himself kind of raises the stakes on swearing by his name, which he did in the Old Testament, God says, listen, if you swear by my name and then don't come through, there will be serious consequences. Then simply replacing his name with another word is a bit like saying, oh, geez, okay, whoa, you didn't put it like that. I'll swear by heaven then. How's that? Built into the substitute is the greater probability of falsehood. When one is unwilling to commit to high stakes, it's like they're admitting to a low probability of follow-through. And oaths become something like, you know, flipping a coin. And you get this. It's like uh, saying you'll do something. Yeah, yeah, sure, I'll do that. And then someone asks, do you promise? And then you're like, oh, geez, okay, well, you're going to put it like that. No, I don't promise, I don't, you know. To actually swear by God's name is pretty scary when it stands to reason that the promise could be broken. So some Jews suggested, don't swear by God, swear by heaven, swear by earth, or swear by Jerusalem, swear by yourself. And Jesus' point was, though the casual employment of oaths and breaking them had led, led to clever ways around using God's name, they yet utilize things that are inseparably linked to God, God's dwelling place, God's possession, his people, his city. And his reasoning is straightforward enough. All your swearing is done before God. Whether you use his name or not, he hears you. He's right there. And God requires truthfulness. And truthfulness requires no bolstering, no persuasion, no manipulation, no fancy wordplay. When any of these things are tethered to our words, the transparency of our truthfulness has already become compromised. When you need to puff up all kinds of extra language, it's already like you're not telling the truth in the first place. And Jesus says that bolstering and persuasion, manipulation, all that is from the evil one because it implies that you are lying. 
The need to reinforce our common yes and no is from the evil one because it betrays our failure to fully realize and embody God's great standard for truthfulness. Just saying yes or no is already imbued with God's great requirement for truthfulness. So put simply, if your integrity is so weak that your word doesn't stand on a simple yes or no, the devil is at work in Jesus' language. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it nicely. He wrote, disciples of Jesus should not swear because there is no such thing as speech not spoken before God. All of their words should be nothing but truth so that nothing requires verification by oath. An oath consigns all other statements to the darkness of doubt. That is why it is from the evil one. There is no truth toward Jesus without truth toward other people. Listen to this. Lying destroys community, but truth rends false community and founds genuine fellowship. What Bonhoeffer is touching on here, the effects of dishonesty on community, is what I want to zero in on this evening. Now, there's actually several dimensions to this teaching from Jesus. He's talking about something called public oaths versus private oaths. And at the end of the day, he forbids both because he wants us to become a people whose words are themselves infused by default with the integrity of our actions. Yes means yes because we show that by the way that we live. Now, we began with a thought experiment wherein you brought to mind every person you know whose word is solid and reliable. If they say they'll be somewhere or do something, you simply trust that they will. This is a conversation about honesty and integrity. Dishonesty is a corrupting toxin whose destructive effects are depicted again and again and again in the Bible from the very first people in the story, story throughout the Old Testament and into the New. God isn't fond of lying. That's my paraphrase about what the Bible has to say about lying. Throughout the story of the Bible, the poems, the Psalms, the wisdom literature, the law, it's abundantly clear that lying is a destructive evil that wreaks havoc on the world, really. And when this new community of Jesus begins to flourish in the New Testament, the authors warn again and again that unchecked dishonesty will wreck community. In Ephesians, Paul warns of the way that lies permeate and affect an entire people. He says, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Listen to this. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In Colossians, he concludes or includes lying on his list of this old way, uh, the old ways of life, the ways that were put to death by Jesus. He says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. That could be sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and listen to this one, filthy language from your lips. Take that, casually cussing Christians. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Now, these are just two examples from the New Testament. We could go on and on, but notice the way that in both texts, Paul situates these ideas of honesty and integrity in the context of community. 
Now, many of us don't make a direct correlation between honesty and truthfulness and whether or not we bail on plans or show up late or whatever it might be. But it doesn't take like a moral philosopher to see that committing to something and then failing to honor that commitment, big or small, is a compromise in honesty and integrity. The reason that we tend to drift in a kind of collective, flaky permissiveness, I would argue, is because we live in a hyper-commitment-phobic culture. When we have our basics class here at Van City, which is kind of introduction to the church and how to get into community, we tell people point blank, listen, this may not be for you. Think seriously about the level of commitment before you jump in. Because we know there's no doing this with half-committed people. And commitment phobia is the status quo. Some experts correlate this in part with the rise of digital communication. Oxford professor Miles Houstone, who specializes in social psychology, said this, I think people find it much easier to cancel via text, Facebook, and WhatsApp. You don't actually have to call someone and admit that you can't or won't come. Bailing shows a lack of empathy for the person whose party, dinner, or drinks you're not bothering to attend. Author and neuroscientist Dr. Tara Swart connects flakiness to FOMO, the fear of missing out. She writes, our brains prefer instant gratification to delayed gratification. Biologically, we are more sensitive to fear of missing out. Fear is our strongest emotion and our brain will seek to avoid feeling this feeling as it correlates with increases in the stress hormone cortisol, which can erode our immunity and damage our mental resilience. As more and more people bail because something better comes up at the last moment, it seems more socially acceptable within the herd mentality. She went on to say this, it shows that people are putting themselves first and it shows good manners are selfless, not selfish. I think too many people now bail without fully accepting or thinking about the consequences to the other person. To bail once is perhaps forgivable, forgivable, but it's a slippery slope and you can form bad habits if people are allowed to get away with it continually. Flakiness, it seems to me, is perhaps one of the easiest examples in our culture of what the New Testament calls the world. If you remember back to our Fighting the World, the Flesh and the Devil series, we talked about the way that the devil's strategy is to use deceitful ideas that pander to our brokenness and that have become, listen to this, normalized in a broken society. That broken society, the New Testament calls the world. And in the world, the broken society, the herd mentality, the status quo, everyone flakes. And the feedback loop of lies from the world back to the individual is especially tricky because it often plays to what you want to hear. In other words, it appeals to your flesh. Do the easier thing, not the harder thing. Community is hard because it asks something of you. This past week, our friends Peter and Allah were over talking with Abby and me late on the couch, and the conversation wandered into the interesting way we all value different types of affection. And Peter, my friend, pointed out the significance of spending time together, because we were talking about, oh, some people's love language is quality time or whatever. And he was saying that it just seems like for everyone, the significance of spending time together is a gesture of radical self-sacrificial love. He was thinking aloud about the way time is precious and about how we can spend it all manner of ways. We have so many options. So when you give it to someone, that can be a tremendous gesture of affection and love. Showing up when you want, 
how you want, contributing when and if you feel like it, that is not community. And yet, this is a depressingly ordinary way in which many approach church. And going against it is a tremendously difficult pill to swallow when the world around you is set up to cater to you, your whole you do you, girl wash your face, hashtag do what makes you happy philosophy of life. In this worldview, the one in which you are the hero of the story, the very first on your list of priorities, commitment and self-sacrificial love conflict with what I would argue are distorted and really illogical understandings of what we now call self-care. So it comes out in things like, hey, listen, it's okay to bail on commitments because you need you time. Or, you know, sometimes you just got to flake because hashtag introvert or some such nonsense. Or you shouldn't be held to any kind of standard because that's judgmental. That's domineering. At Van City, we have a very high view of emotional health. The, the practices from which this series are based on is a book called Emotionally Healthy Relationships, for God's sake. But there's no reason that your emotional health ever has to conflict with your integrity or your commitments. More on that in just a minute. At the end of the day, this is a conversation about how to love one another. Last week, we talked at length about this often misunderstood concept of honor, and we described it this way. Honor is assigning value to a person or recognizing the value of a person. So faithfulness, commitment, showing up, being where you said you would be, doing what you said you would do, this is, to my estimation anyway, what it means to truly honor one another, assigning them value and recognizing their value with the sacredness of your commitment to them in ways big and small. When you do something as simple as operating as a person of dependable integrity, you demonstrate your love for others in a very real way, a way more tactile and concrete than many others. So I was writing this. One person that came to mind earlier in the exercise was a friend of mine named Matt. He lives in Portland. He's part of another church. Um, and he lives in a different city and state. And so we have, to do, we have to be pretty deliberate about spending time together if we want to stay friends. And Matt is the type of dude that if he says he'll be there, whether it's like casual text or serious in-person conversation, I honestly never for a moment doubt that, whether anyone reminds him or not, he will be where he said he would be, and he will be a few minutes early, sometimes very early at that. And I actually love that. And what Matt's commitment demonstrates to me is not just that it's nice to have a dependable friend. That is nice. But it's also that he loves me, that he values our friendship. He values my time. He values our company. And because he does and because I do back, we're able to maintain a healthy, meaningful friendship, even though our life rhythms have, have put us in different directions, different cities, different churches. When we devalue and dishonor one another, the community breaks down. And left unchecked, it will die. And I know that sounds dire, but believe me, I'm saying this as someone who has experienced it firsthand several times. So before we end, let's just talk a bit of practicality. The New Testament doesn't account for smartphones and schedules in 2019. Spoiler alert, if you didn't know that about the New Testament. So we have to do a bit of contextualizing here. But I want to highlight some best practices that I've learned over time being in a community for many years that I've learned from older, wiser, more experienced men and women who have been living in community, leading churches, and figuring this out together. And let's just start with the basics. First, a commitment is a commitment. Man, I can't count 
how often I've navigated the fallout of flakiness in which the flaking person drew from some imaginary metric of what qualifies as a real commitment to them personally. So someone says they'll do something and then doesn't. And then the affected person is justifiably hurt or upset or annoyed. And the offending party will say, oh, I mean, yeah, I said that I would do that, but it was kind of casual in a text. I didn't know it was an actual plan. Or they say, they'll say like, oh, I just said that I would be there in passing, I did, in the moment. I didn't know it was for sure. You are 100% in control and responsible for what you say. And for Jesus, what you say should be so ironclad that it never requires supplemental reinforcement or additional language at all. The New Testament goes on and on about the power of your words and the incredible responsibility of Jesus' disciples to show great concern for what they say. A commitment is a commitment, whether you use the word commitment or not, or whether you promise or not. Whether the language is casual or intense, whether the setting is laid back or formal, a commitment is a commitment. Yes means yes, and no means no. In his commentary on Matthew 5, the passage we just read, scholar Frederick Dale Bruner writes this, when a Christian says, I will be there, the Christian will be there. When a Christian says, no, the Christian means no. When a Christian joins a group or enrolls in a course, or accepts an invitation. The Christian fully means what that act entails and is faithfully there. Yes means yes. By obeying this little command, a Christian's whole life is invested with the seriousness of an oath. A Christian's simple yes is to be the equivalent of a pagan's whole string of oaths. To this I say, right on. Saying we'll be somewhere or do something and then canceling, often at the last minute, not showing up, not committing, not following through, is frankly an absolute affront to the teachings of Jesus who requires that his disciples be known for their integrity and their faithfulness in their words and in their deeds. And this is true whether it's dinner with friends or your community night or a class or a church thing, anything to which you have committed. The disciple of Jesus does what they say they will do honors their commitments, follows through. If they sign up, if they say they're going to be there, they show up. Once you've committed to doing something, it matters not how glamorous the commitment in question might be or what might come along to supersede it. If, for example, you plan on grabbing a cup of coffee with a friend in the morning, grab the cup of coffee with a friend in the morning. You are now booked. That's how it works. All other plans must be made around this engagement, not vice versa. If it worked better for you to shift your schedule or sleep in or meet up with someone cooler that just texts you after the fact or go the next day or whatever it might be, these things are all beside the point because you committed. You said you would. And your friend doesn't need to know. You would have liked to move things around. Or what matters to them is that you're one of their only faithful friends. Maybe you're the person who came to mind during that little exercise. You said you'd be somewhere and do something. Something, and that means it's as good as done if you are a disciple of Jesus. You're tired, you'd like to catch up on some work or just learn that another friend is town or you'd love a morning at home to yourself. Well, those things will all have to play second fiddle to the thing you said you would do first. Otherwise, don't make such commitments in the first place. Learn to say no. Learn to plan ahead. That thing that you carry in your pocket has a calendar in it. It's very efficient. One of the only good things about it. Because if, if you're the type who bails, 
or who cancels or who flakes or who doesn't follow through. The truth is you frustrate the people in your life. They, they learn to anticipate that you can't be depended on. They hesitate to entrust you with anything. When you're not around and someone mentions a list of people who have committed to something in particular, oh, who's coming to this thing, and your name comes up, they all say, yeah, but who knows? You know, we'll see when the day comes. Or perhaps a bit more dire, but still completely true, people eventually learn to think of you as selfish because you're unwilling to make even small sacrifices just to honor things to which you have pledged your presence or your involvement. And then maybe eventually you, you're thought of as a bad friend. And so it is with the name that you bear. Those of us who call ourselves disciples of Jesus, oh, they're so-and-so, the person whose word is no good, who can't be counted on, who doesn't show up, who backs out at the last second, who cancels appointments, and they claim to follow Jesus. Yikes. And believe me when I say the people in your life and the people in your life who do not follow Jesus, they notice when you lack integrity. So... To uphold our integrity, we need to get better at saying no. Some of us struggle with boundaries, the ability to recognize and operate in the understanding that some stuff you just can't do, some very good stuff you just can't do. So if you don't want to end up in a possible integrity compromising scenario or showing up for something when you're too tired, you're overbooked, or you need to get better at respectfully declining. We'll get better at keeping a calendar. Again, most of you have one on, and that device that follows you everywhere you go, look at it, weigh the options, look at the big picture of the day, the week, the month. If you don't like smartphone calendars, great, that's awesome. Keep a paper one. They still make those as well. But while you're at it, put to death procrastination. I was reading this week that psychologists trace one of the root causes of flakiness, if not the root cause, to procrastination, putting things off until the last minute. And many of us will never be highly organized executive personalities with color-coded systems for our garage storage or whatever it might be. My wife, Abby, is that way. It's awesome. I benefit from it on a daily basis. It's fantastic. I'm not that way. I have ADD, constantly pulled in all sorts of directions with my focus and attention. Even this right now is an absolute struggle. You have no idea. Um, Plans and projects and thoughts, uh, strings of thoughts all the time. Um, But all of us, whether you're like me or like Abby, all of us can learn to deal with procrastination. No personality test or Myers-Briggs test or Enneagram number will get you off the hook. Remember, put to death procrastination. And once you commit, the burden of coming through is on you. Here's what I mean by that. I honestly can't tell you how many times I've had people flick out on something with this excuse. They'll say, oh, well, yeah, we made a plan, but then I didn't hear anything between now and then, so I didn't know if it was still happening. And I'm always like, what? You know, if you commit to something, please do not make the person to whom you've committed remind you. You committed. That person is not Siri. You know, ask your phone to do that for you. Another thing that it can do, Cam told me when he was reading this teaching that all of the people who can't, out of, out of all of the people who cancel on him, 50% of them use this excuse. Checking in is totally fine. It's great. Updates are fine. But once you've committed, commit, even if there's no line of communication between then and then. That's settled. And on that note of commitment, let's talk for just a second about explicit commitment versus implied commitment. Explicit commitment is what it sounds like. You actually say or text or email someone and say, I'll be there or I'll do it or sure, yes, whatever it might be. That's explicit. Implied commitment is when life rhythm takes you in such 
a shape that deviating, or when life rhythm takes such a shape, that deviating from that rhythm could have a negative effect on others, even if there's no explicit commitment. So here's an example about that. Levi is a leader here at Van City. He's a dude who goes above and beyond to pitch in, present. He's really present, contributes all the time. Ordinarily, Levi is around and available on a given Sunday evening, whether he's on the schedule to serve specifically or not. He's usually here. He lends a helping hand as much as he can. He's been doing it for years now. A couple of weeks ago, we were cleaning up after the gathering, and Levi let me know that in a few, it could be tonight, right? It's actually tonight. See, he let me know that on this particular night, he wouldn't be able to be here because his family was having a get-together, and they're going to have a birthday party for a bunch of his relatives. He was one of them. And uh, if Levi would have just not shown up, he wouldn't have broken any commitment. He wouldn't have done a single thing wrong whatsoever. But he had the sensitivity, the sensitivity and the intuition to say, hey, listen, I know I'm usually here, and I won't be. So just so you know, plan on that if it helps. I think that this too is a gesture of Levi's integrity and faithfulness, though he didn't owe us an explanation or notice at all. Another example, I have breakfast every Monday morning with a group of friends. We've been doing it for years and years now. We often check in with one another on Sunday night. Hey, is everyone good? But not always. Sometimes no one says anything and we just go. I never said that I would do that for the rest of my life. We've been doing it for like five or six years now. Um, we, often check, or, or we often check in, not always. If ever a scheduling conflict uh, uh, arises on my behalf or if ever I need to cancel, I usually just let everyone know, hey, just so you know, I won't be there tomorrow. That's not an explicit and specific commitment per se on my part, but there is a kind of implied expectation that I'll be there or it'll be really different if I'm not. When in doubt, my advice is to err on the side of impeccable integrity. It costs you very little to have a small conversation and it costs a lot to damage your integrity. But listen, all of us know that even when you're aware of this and really trying, you make mistakes. I know I'm talking really hardcore about all this, but I have absolutely made mistakes and violated some of the things that I'm saying. So let's talk for a minute about how to deal with the fallout, how to cancel well. I listened to a pastor that I really admire once that uh, he said that at his church, they established an expectation that if you are on the rotation to serve and you decide to cancel on that commitment to serve, whether you're making coffee or teaching the kids class, whatever it might be, the, the expectation is that you call the person with whom you're canceling. No texting allowed. And I was like, good grief, we don't, we don't even get texts. <laughs> you will likely wind up in a situation at one point or another where because of poor planning or decision making, honest mistakes, but mistakes, you decide to break a commitment. Let the person that you are disappointing know that you take that seriously. And I think a great way to do that is to actually call them if you can't talk to them face-to-face. Face-to-face is preferable, but um, usually there's reasons that you won't see each other before that commitment is broken. So call them. A while back, here's a, uh, I planned on watching a movie with a friend, and because of my own inattentiveness, I failed to realize that I was going to be out of town for a thing with family. And I remember that I was kind of reading a text. This is a very forgiving person, very close friend. And then I was just, as I was typing, like, oh, man, this is tacky, especially since I'm the one who's always going on against flakiness. And I was like, it, it indicates such an egregious flippancy on my part. So I stopped. I actually called them on the phone. I let them know it was my fault. I'd messed up the calendar. I'd been careless, and I wanted their forgiveness. Of course, they were gracious, and they were forgiving. But I think a necessary component in combating our flakiness is a readiness to take responsibility 
and then to repent. And please hear me when I say something I've said before. You are 100% in control of how you do and do not spend your time. I think we should all remember to eliminate phrase, the phrase, I didn't have time for, from our vocabularies, and instead say, I chose not to make time for, or I chose not to spend my time on. If you commit and then you break that commitment, you are the one that is responsible. Now, of course, if someone falls violently ill or gets snowed in or has a flat tire or some such thing, that's all very different. You, you understand that. You know what I'm talking about. When and if you actually break a commitment, though, you call or you meet with that person and then you take responsibility and you apologize. Please do not defer responsibility by citing the re your great reasons. You know, oh, I have this busy schedule, so it's not really my fault, it's my schedule's fault, whatever it might be. Let them know that you take breaking a commitment very seriously and say, like, I chose poorly, I planned poorly, and I'm sorry. And then, finally, hold one another accountable. Believe me when I say that flakiness is and has been among the greatest, most devastating enemies of the life of our church, of the life of every church that I talk to or meet with or am close with. It destroys communities. It wreaks havoc on the Sunday gathering, not just for us, but for all manner of churches. And I talk to people all the time who are reeling from the damage done by flakiness in their communities, and they all talk about it amongst themselves, but no one has confronted the offending party directly. And we've talked at length in this series about the way a community cannot function or survive without vulnerability and accountability, which is holding someone accountable. It doesn't mean that you pounce on them when they blow it and rub their wrongdoing in their face. You suck, you missed, or you, know, you flicked, whatever it might be. It means that you prayerfully, with humility and kindness, check yourself first, and then you actually say something to someone who bails on a commitment. You say, hey, listen, you said you would do this, and then you didn't do it. Let's talk, let's talk about why that happened. Actually deal with it. Do not, I know this sounds rough, but do not rush immediately to the grace and the forgiveness without the emotional health necessary to do the confession and the repentance part first. Meaning, if you have someone struggling to honor commitments and isn't taking the consequences of their actions seriously and you just keep rushing to, oh, no problem, no, all is forgiving without talking it out in vulnerability and accountability, nothing changes. And then eventually resentment will begin to grow, sure, slowly but surely, and it poisons a community. And that's what this entire conversation is all about, community. When we started our community years ago, I had already done this uh, model of community several times, and I was like, look, I've seen too many communities undone by dashed commitments. I've been in them myself. I don't want to do it anymore. The only way that I'm in is if we set this standard, and the decree read thusly, unless you are truly sick, not just like, eh, I have a headache, you know, because everyone's got a headache, unless you are truly sick requ or required to be elsewhere by your employer, or you have a family emergency, you will be at the Sunday night gathering and you will be at community night. And that's the commitment, that's the expectation. Now, of course, we have, you know, uh, room and nuance for one another. If you're on vacation, it's like, I got concert tickets, that kind of thing. It happens every now and then. That's the baseline commitment. Now, we had a couple in the community at that time that didn't want to agree to that level of commitment. Oh, it seems like a lot. We don't really want to do that. And I was like, no, hardcore. And Cam reminded me today that he, he actually, this is funny now, he actually argued, nah, let's give them a bit of room. You know, they don't want to commit. Let's just give them a bit of license. A few months later, no one was happy with how 
how things were going. We were frustrated with the spotty attendance. They were frustrated. They rarely knew what was going on. And this lopsided level of investment was ever before us. So we reevaluated and we reinstituted the high buy-in for everyone. Now, you don't have to have that same decree for your community, but honestly, I think you should consider it or something like it. Because when you vocalize that kind of expectation, you get to hold one another to it. Not in a petty kind of scrutinizing way where you're like, oh, oh, we keep this rule book and we write your name when you violate it. Someone drops the ball. You get to say like, oh, remember we set this standard. So let's talk about why we're having trouble meeting that standard. And that standard isn't about rigorous rule keeping. It's about learning to love one another well. In Paul's language, it's about learning to honor one another above yourself. I remember once in a community that I was in years ago, prior to Van City, we had one dude who was uh, incredibly faithful, and he sacrificed so much to be at commitment. He rode two buses to get to community straight from work in his you know, uniform and everything. He stopped briefly to run into a Safeway and get his contribution to the dinner, get back on a bus, get there. He was there all night. He helped clean everything up, and then he'd ride the buses back home afterward. There was another couple in the community who it was kind of a shared house situation. And I kid you not, lived in the house that hosted the community and often wouldn't come. They wouldn't come downstairs and they'd be like, oh, we're tired or whatever it might be. We want some time to ourselves. And that hurtful disregard to this other guy who was giving so much was painfully obvious all the time. That is why I think one reason why Paul says, listen, honor one another above yourselves. So, when you mess up, and it happens, forgive one another, have patience with one another, enable one another to embody a better way. When you see faithfulness, recognize it, celebrate faithfulness. This dude that I'm talking about now, it, it actually pains me. I'm not sure that I ever said, I thought all the time, man, Liam does so much to get here on time. He does so much to participate. I don't remember if I told him in the moment. So when you see faithfulness, uh, honor it and recognize it and celebrate it. When a person who has struggled to maintain faithfulness in the past starts to follow through, recognize that and praise it. It is really difficult to earn away a reputation for being flaky for all sorts of reasons, but it does not have to be that way in the family of God. God the Father chooses to recognize you as new and forgiven at a moment's notice, so do the same for one another. Now, I realize I've been uh, what some might call pretty tough on flakiness, but I do want to admit that I know full well that there are very valid reasons we all have from time to time for wanting to bail. People are difficult. That makes community really difficult. I'm really difficult. I am absolutely sure that I have been the reason someone's like, I don't even want to go to community tonight because Josh is there. Conflict, brokenness, even just really polarizing personalities, different personalities can pose formidable challenges to the person who genuinely wants to show up, but it's really, really hard. I get that. It's very valid. Anxiety and depression, the lingering effects of trauma from the past or even the present rear their ugly heads and they work to draw you away from the community. But even though community is hard and even though the people in a community are broken, community is where the healing takes place. And that doesn't mean we won't ever hurt one another, but it does mean we will not grow and we will, will not heal in isolation. 
Now, believe me, I am a profoundly emotional person, very high highs and very low lows. But with respect and with humility, I want all of us to understand, I, I want to understand myself that while there are, are often very valid reasons for feeling one way or another, it's never okay to compromise your integrity by breaking a commitment. To do so is to honor yourself above another. And as disciples of Jesus, we are to honor one another above ourselves. Together, my prayer is that we can learn to grow in what it means to commit well, to say no well, to honor our word even when it's hard, and to build over time a yes that means yes and a no that means no. Jesus, empower us to do this as a family. Let's pray and invite God's Spirit to come and speak. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vancity financially at vancity.church/give.